in the uh, old sci-fi book, uh, Dune. I don't know how many of you guys ever read that book. Maybe you watched the movie recently. Uh, the, there's a young boy named Paul Atreides. He's kind of the central figure. And there is an important scene where in his younger years, he's called before this woman who's a witch who is part of a religious order that's overseeing the universe in the future. And she puts him through a test. She takes his right hand and she puts it inside of this box that mysteriously causes this intense pain while your hand is inside of it. And she's doing this as a test. She wants to see how he will respond when things hurt, how he will respond in times of difficulty because he will need to be a leader in the future who responds well to adversity. And young Paul, he at first responds by grimacing, then he yells, the pain is intense, but eventually he just simply resolves, I'm going to keep my hand in the box until this test has passed. He becomes resolved to endure pain. At the end of the book of Habakkuk, we discover a prophet who has become resolved to endure pain. In the closing two verses or three verses of this book, the prophet sings this incredible song to God where he tells God, Lord, if all the crops in Israel perish, if all the livestock and produce in Israel is demolished, if we experience cataclysmic events in our society, no matter what happens, no matter what unfolds, even if we're subjected to abject poverty, God, I want you to know that I will find my joy in you. I will trust and rejoice in you as my God. It's a, it's a statement of incredible trust. It's a statement of incredible faith. Earlier in the book, in chapter two, God will tell the prophet Habakkuk that the just or the righteous, they will live by faith. And Habakkuk comes at the end of that book to that position or place of faith. But though that's how the book ends, it's definitely not how the book starts, as we're going to see today. The book begins with a prophet who is confused at what God is doing, or as he perceives it, not doing. He questions God, he challenges God. In a sense, he's interrogating God. And God answers this man in these opening, this opening chapter in a profound and unexpected way. So what happened to this man, Habakkuk, that brought him from arguing with God about God and God's inactivity to a place of saying, God, I trust you no matter what. I'm leaning on you no matter what. You are trustworthy no matter what. Well, that's what the book of Habakkuk is about. It's a conversation between God's man, God's person, God's prophet, and himself. And in the book, God does not change. He is not shifted. He is unmoved, but Habakkuk changes through this interaction with God. And by the end of the book comes to a place of extreme trust. Now, it's progressive, it takes a while, there are stages that the prophet has to go through, and my prayer 
is that we would go through these same stages as well. I'm sure none of us here today could say or profess, I trust God no matter what, just like Habakkuk said. No, there's always an area of our lives where we need to trust God further. So my hope is that this book will help us uh, see how we can trust the Lord even more. So because of this, I'm calling this whole series or this study Unreasonable, Reasonable Trust. What I mean by that is that our trust is unreasonable in the sense that it's not based on what we can see, but it is reasonable in that it is based on God and his gospel. And so it is unreasonable, yet a reasonable trust in the Lord. Now, uh, before I read the first few verses, some of you might be wondering, how do you say this guy's name? I've been saying it Habakkuk. Some of you guys call him Habakkuk. And I've heard other many uh, other adventurous names in my years. And uh, in my house, there's a little bit of a disagreement about this. It's caused a little bit of a marital conflict. I'm a, I'm a Habakkuk guy, and Christina's a Habakkuk person. And I have this little resource that's uh, part of my study software. It's kind of like Bible names pronounced for dummies. And uh, you just look up the name and you hit play and it tells you, uh, it reads out loud how to pronounce uh, any given name. And I've used this resource uh, over the years from time to time. And for the first time ever, I discovered uh, an entry that has two possibilities. Habakkuk and Habakkuk. So whatever you want to say, however you want to call them, I think we're all getting it wrong anyways. We don't have enough phlegm in it, I'm pretty sure, with the way we're saying his name. But let's read the beginning of his book. It starts with his song of discouragement. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Uh, the book just begins like the blast of a cannon. I mean, there's no real background. You don't see anything uh, that tells you the setting or the age or the time that he was ministering to in. But there are a few things that we can learn even from these opening verses about the background that Habakkuk was in. First of all, we can probably glean that he was a poetic uh, man, a musical person, uh, because this opening salvo against God is actually written in song form, in poem form. And at the end of the book, uh, those suspicions that he's a poetic man are confirmed because he writes a song of praise to God in the last chapter, and he uses this word in chapter three, verse one, he says, accompanied to the Shigianoth, which we have no idea what it means, but it probably means a specific rhythm of song that was sung. And then at the close of chapter three, Habakkuk gives the directions to the choir master and says, sing this song accompanied with stringed instruments. So this is an artistic poet, 
uh, songwriting man who is also a prophet, and he puts these prophecies in song form. We also learned that this man had a burden. That's clear from just what he said to God, but in the opening verses, we also see that he saw an oracle. Uh, what this means, that word oracle, it means to be lifted up or something to be carried. Uh, some Bible translations just call it a burden, that this man had a burden. There was something that was revealed to him, something that he saw. So you can sort of envision like a soldier carrying an 80-pound pack on their back. Every movement that they make is affected by the burden that they are carrying. That was the prophet. He saw something that changed everything about his life. And another thing that we learn about him right off the bat is that he felt comfortable being incredibly honest with God. I mean, he wonders out loud how long he's going to have to pray. God, how long am I gonna have to pray about this? He wonders if God hears him. He's tired, he says in verse two, of alerting God over and over again to violence without any response. He challenges God's wisdom. God, why do I have to see so much sin? And he's frustrated by things like destruction and violence and arguing and strife and contention all around him. He's just over it. I'm sick of all this drama, he's saying to God. He even in verse four says to God, the Bible is ineffective. The law is paralyzed. He tells God justice never happens, and when it does happen, it's perverted. It's a strange definition of justice. But this last little thing that we learn about the prophet actually tells us a lot about God. Here's God writing his word, preserving his word, and he accepts this prayer in the pages of Holy Scripture. He's willing to have these challenges and this honesty thrown in his direction. And just as so we can learn a little bit about the prophet from this opening paragraph, we can also, I think, learn a little bit about the situation that Habakkuk was actually in during that time. And the real clue is found in verse four when he tells God that the law is paralyzed. The reason why that's a clue is because it helps us understand the target or the view that Habakkuk had, who he saw that discouraged him so much. You see, when we read those opening verses, some of you might have been nodding in agreement, like, oh yeah, you know, this guy is seeing the same things that I'm seeing in my time and culture and society. He's seeing the same things that I've seen in the unbelieving world that I'm living in. But the fact that Habakkuk says to God, the law is paralyzed is a clue that Habakkuk is not concerned with the unbelieving world. He is looking inside the house of God and he is discouraged that the very Bible that was meant to govern the lives of God's people had no authority. It was as if it was paralyzed among the people of God, paralyzed. When, when a body is dead, it's not paralyzed. When it's alive, yet some accident has occurred, then it's paralyzed. It's like you see a paralyzed hand and you know what it's designed to do, but because it's paralyzed, it can't carry out its design. And Habakkuk is saying to God, God, your word is designed 
to produce certain things in the lives of your people, but they, through their actions, have caused your word to be paralyzed. It's ineffective in their lives. Now, the question that we should ask is, is there anything from the historical books of the Old Testament that might give us a clue as to what season Habakkuk was in? In a few verses, God is going to tell Habakkuk that pretty soon the Babylonians or the Chaldeans are coming. So we know this is right before the time when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came into and invaded Israel. And right about that time, there was a king named Josiah who arose onto the scene. He was a good king. One of the things that happened in Josiah's day was that they rediscovered the Bible. It had been kind of buried and neglected for so many years. And when they discovered it, Josiah instituted, led from the top down reforms for all of the people. He told them, we have to start worshiping God. We have to start tithing to his temple. We gotta start offering the sacrifices. This is his word for us. We need to obey it. And the people were about it. And the whole nation reformed itself almost overnight. And it seemed to be true and genuine, real, until Josiah died. And when Josiah died, the people began to rebel against God again. And what became obvious was that a top-down, legislated, you-have-to-worship-God form of leadership really didn't work among God's people. What was required was a bottom-up from the personal heart of individuals saying, I want to be devoted to God. But that's not the age that Habakkuk was living in. And he's mourning over it. He's frustrated by it. So, this is an important decision that we have to make about this book because the question is, who was he saddened by? Who was he frustrated by? And I'm trying to build the case for you that he was frustrated by the people of Israel, the named people of God, the church of that era. And the reason why that's so important is because it is very tempting, especially when you read those first four verses, to use the book of Habakkuk as a soapbox against society's ills, and a lot of modern preachers have done so, but Habakkuk was initially discouraged by the ills of God's people, what was happening inside the church. I think to use Habakkuk to rail against the sin of the world is like being in the emergency room with a gunshot wound to your stomach, getting out of your bed, going across the hall, reading your neighbor's chart, discovering that they have a sprained ankle and becoming intensely sad for their condition. You gotta read your own charts. Recognize your own condition. See the plank in your own eye to borrow from Jesus. There's plenty to be sad about right there, and Habakkuk had done that work. He, in everything that he saw, broke his heart. And I think we can relate to this guy. I realize that this is not a very happy first point that I'm trying to make here in this sermon. But in our age of church scandals, the prevalence of strange doctrines, and just a general accepted acknowledgement that Great swaths of Christians don't look any different from the world that they live in. Can't we relate a little bit to Habakkuk's spirit? 
It can feel like the world is, like the, like the word is paralyzed among God's people. Like all the pornography, all the consumerism, all the self-expressionism, all the hyper-independence that makes us bounce around from place to place seems to keep the positive effects of the Bible from breaking into many people's lives. And Habakkuk saw it and he asked, how long, how long, how long do I need to see this? Now, before I move on to read God's response, I'm happy to announce that someone better than Habakkuk eventually appeared. Habakkuk saw a lot and he said a lot, but when Jesus came, he saw more than Habakkuk saw and he did more than Habakkuk could ever do. When Jesus saw us, he saw bigger sins than Habakkuk could ever see. He saw that we were bound and enslaved in sin and captivity to it. And rather than run from it, Jesus ran to it. He didn't just bemoan it like this man, but he solved it by going to the cross for us. So for that, we rejoice. But the book doesn't end right there in verse four. God responds. The language changes in verse five. It's very clear there's a new speaker talking to the prophet. So let's read it in verse five through 11. This is what God says. Now remember Habakkuk's question. He's saying, how long? How long do I have to watch this, witness this, experience this? Notice what God says in response. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand at kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth and take it. Then, verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, this response from God probably startled Habakkuk in a couple of ways. First of all, it probably startled him that he got a response at all. Uh, in their day, there were plenty of Jewish songs and hymns and prayers that just mourned the state or condition of things without any expectation that God was going to reply. But again, the bulk of his song said, God, you're not doing anything. And God wanted Habakkuk to know that he was doing something. But that's what would have really surprised Habakkuk. That's why God said, it's an astounding work in verse five. He said, it's like, if I tell you, you won't even believe what I tell you. God predicted in verse six that in Habakkuk's lifetime, God was going to raise up the wicked and violent Chaldean armies to invade and destroy Jerusalem, Judah, or Israel. It acknowledged in verse seven that these Chaldeans answered to nobody. There was no authority over them. They answered to no man. They were a law unto themselves. In verse eight, God said, 
that they were speedy and ferocious and prideful when he compared them to leopards and wolves and horsemen. He compared the number of their captives to the sands of the sea. And in verse 10, he detailed their response to kings or fortresses who tried to stop them. He said, they just laugh and they overtake them. And then in verse 11, God said, they're like a hurricane that sweeps through and then they worship their own military might and power. Now, I'm a kid from the 90s, so forgive me for this next comparison, but if Habakkuk's song was like a moody and depressing Nirvana track, God's song was like an aggressive and in-your-face rage-against-the-machine track. I mean, it just had so much force, it's hard to even believe that this is what God was up to. Habakkuk was mourning over sin, but what you need to know is that God had been mourning over their sin for almost 500 years. He'd sent prophet after prophet. He'd felt all the things that Habakkuk had felt for centuries. But it had finally gotten to the point where God needed to do one of his most radical works of judgment and discipline in order to purify his people. And what God said that he would do is that he would send the Chaldeans, who eventually became the Babylonians that many of us know from the book of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, he sent them to destroy or invade Judah and bring them into captivity. And when they came, they were merciless, just like God predicted they would be. One example of their ruthless ways is found in the way that they took captive the final king in Jerusalem, a man named Zedekiah. When they finally captured Jerusalem and took Zedekiah, they brought his sons in front of him, the princes of Judah, and they slayed, they slaughtered, they killed all of his sons right in front of his eyes, and then, so that would be the final thing he'd seen, they plucked out his eyes and bound him and took him to a Babylonian prison. They were ruthless, and this was... God's directive saying, this is what it will take for me to get you to respond to me. And I don't want you to miss this, but everything that God said is in the form of a song as well. It's also poetry. I think that's important because it helps us see that God, it's like he was there in heaven writing this song of judgment. He's not presented like a cold lawyer writing his decrees in paragraph form, but like a jilted lover who's saying, I can't believe that it's come to this point. I can't believe that this is the move that I have to make. I can't believe that you're that hard-hearted that you won't return to me in any other way. Now, this poem, song, is a shock. God would cure his people's disobedience by sending seemingly worse people to chasten them. The Chaldeans would become God's scalpel to access the cancer deep within his people. And God is presenting himself here as the one who will do whatever it takes to get that job done. You know, one of my favorite um, actors is Liam Neeson. 
And uh, in 2008, something happened to Liam Neeson's career. I, I don't know what happened, but he starred in a movie in 2008 called Taken where someone kidnaps his adult daughter and then he's like an ex, I don't know, something. He's, he's just got all these skills and so he goes on this rampage to rescue his daughter. And ever since that movie, it's like every other movie that Liam Neeson is in, he's basically playing the same character. You know, he's rescuing wives and girlfriends and daughters, and I think he's got some, one with granddaughters. He's getting older and older, so it's gonna be like great-granddaughters pretty soon. I mean, he's just doing whatever it takes. And, and the thing that I love about these uh, common stories is that it's like this over-the-top, man, this guy will do whatever it takes to reach and rescue the person he loves. I think that's the gospel, and I think that's what God is doing right here. He's saying, this is what it's going to take. I know it sounds extreme, but I've got to do this unbelievable work in order to bring you back to myself. You know, last week we thought for a moment when we were in Proverbs chapter three about how God's ways are not our ways. And here we see this truth as Habakkuk and God's perspectives are placed in stark contrast. God's way of sending the Chaldeans was high above Habakkuk's desire. I think all Habakkuk wanted was, God, we had a reform. We had a revival once before. It didn't stick, but give us another one. It'll stick. It'll last this time. God says, no, that's not the answer. And he explains to Habakkuk what he's doing. And Habakkuk will, in a moment, express his confusion before God. When God is saying these things to Habakkuk, it's like a mathematical genius trying to explain advanced calculus to a little child who's just learned basic addition. Habakkuk is floored. He's like, how can that be? But of course, God understands because of his vantage point. But to Habakkuk, it doesn't add up. And I think a lot of times we're this way. We have our simple equations for figuring out or explaining the things, things like the presence of evil or human suffering. We have questions about why evil flourishes. But we often approach these questions with the simple addition of what we think is good or what we think is bad. God, however, approaches these problems with the advanced calculus of the gospel where he consumed on the cross the worst of all evils for us so that we could escape pain forever through belief in Jesus. But it's often hard for us to process God's way because we're like children in comparison to the wisdom of God. But I think of all people, we should be those as Christians who understand that this is what God can do. Resurrection is preceded by death, we know that, so perhaps God would allow death at times in order for his resurrecting work to take place in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that the Father will sometimes prune or even take away the branch so that more fruit can come. And when Peter wrote to a church that was being marginalized by their society, he comforted them by saying that God was using that society as his scalpel in their lives to sharpen his people. He said, for it's time, 1 Peter 4, 17, for judgment to begin at the house of God. So perhaps we might be shocked that God would choose to work in this way. Perhaps we can't imagine God using 
the wicked schemes of our time or the wicked worldviews of our time or the wicked movements of our time to discipline and sharpen and improve his people. But why not? Why can't God do that? Why can't he shape us in and with those methods? Well, Habakkuk was shocked, and he wanted to tell God how shocked he was. So let's read our last movement of our passage today in verse 12 to 17. He said to God, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on, verse 17, emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This statement that Habakkuk makes to God, it does not sound at all like what he'll say at the end of the book. There's no, oh God, I trust you. Even when there's no crops and no herds, I trust you, I rejoice in you. Habakkuk instead responds with this statement of disillusionment. You know, he's ready to argue with God. And when he makes his statements to God, it's clear that he's struggling because he has all these beliefs deep inside that are now conflicted within him. Like, for instance, he believed strongly that the Chaldean people were ripe for God's judgment. He thought of them as the people that needed judgment, not the people of Israel. So that was a concept that he was wrestling with when God gave his answer. Or secondly, he thought Israel, us, the people of God, we are special. He said in verse 12, he said, we shall not die. We are more righteous than them. He knew that they were God's called and chosen people. He knew that they were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he struggled to think that God could treat them in that way. And clearly, Habakkuk believed that God was good. He said, God, you're perfect. You're from a holy dimension. You're from eternity. You can't even look at evil, he said to God in verse 13. Perhaps all of these things that Habakkuk was bringing to God, maybe you've been there as well, where you're trying to reconcile different things that you know to be true about God from his word, but you're wrestling with how to reconcile what you see with what you know about God. Maybe you've even done at times what Habakkuk did, and you've tried to argue with God by appealing to facets of his character and nature. You're like, God, I read in your word that you are love. God is love, John said. And so if that's who you are, then you should do this. And you spell it all out for God. This is exactly how you should act. Or God, you're holy. 
Here's what's going on in our world today. Here's what people are saying and believing today. So if you are holy, then this is what you should do. And you spell it all out for God. This is exactly how you should behave. See, it all seems so strange and excessive to Habakkuk. And he had his theological arguments against God ready to go. How could God allow the sin of the Chaldeans to go unchecked? So Habakkuk has shifted. He's no longer concerned with the sin in the camp, but now the sin outside of the camp. Those wicked murderers in his mind deserve more of God's judgment than the people of Israel did. Habakkuk felt that God's medicine was, was worse than the cure or the disease. And the prophet would have preferred just to have one more revival, one more reform. And I think that Habakkuk in this moment, he felt like a lot of us feel at times, that when evil unfolds in our lives, it's pointless. It's not good, always bad. God had a specific plan for using the wickedness of the Chaldeans in the life of his people. And that plan is difficult for us to accept or to imagine. But listen to me, just because we can't imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean that there can't be a reason. What we're doing is basic addition, but God is busy doing advanced calculus. Tim Keller wrote it like this in his seminal book, A Reason for God. He said, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. In other words, he's saying, if God is so big that he could push a button and stop it all, then that means simultaneously, he's smarter than all of us combined. Before a Christian, what do we do? What do we run to? Well, we, of course, run to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the cross that shows us the love and the holiness of God, the justice and the mercy of God. It shows us that in God's estimation, the way to eradicate evil, dare I say, the only way to eradicate evil, is not by him putting the world on autopilot to do whatever he wants at any given moment, but by going himself into our world and suffering the worst of all evils for us, suffering and dying and rising from the dead. We have to remember this about God. Now Habakkuk was stressed out because the Chaldeans were treating the nations, people on earth, like fishermen treat fish, catching, killing, consuming. But we have to remember that God is fishing too. God is also at work trying to rescue human beings. So we have to run to the cross afresh. You know, when little kids play tag, there's usually like home base, right? You run around and then you get home and you're safe. That's where the Christian runs during times of confusion, times of chaos, times that they don't understand. We run to the cross of Christ. 
Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this teaching, Habakkuk is not going to remain in this state of confusion forever. In fact, in the first verse of chapter 2, he says, I'm going to go up to my watchtower, and I'm going to wait to see what God says when I'm corrected. All right, so he kind of knows. You ever prayed a prayer like that where you're like, I know I'm, I, I'm wrong about this one, but I'm going to let God have it, and then I'm going to be corrected. That's what this prophet was going through. And eventually, he will get to the point where he trusts God implicitly. He goes through the process that many of us go through. We present the problem to God. God then presents his promises to us. We then praise him, and out the other end comes this deeper trust in him. That trust is the goal, but here's the thing. We often get stuck on the problem. We often get stuck on the problem. We get stuck in Habakkuk chapter 1, and we never get through to the end of chapter 3. We get stuck asking, why is there evil in the world? Or why is there evil in the church? Why do people who claim to love God sometimes do horrible things? Why isn't there more love and devotion to God and his word among his people? Why do insidious ideologies and movements gain traction in our modern time? Why do people get sick without cause? Why can't we shake ourselves from war and famine and disease? Why do innocent children suffer and die? With all these questions, we can quickly get stuck on the problem rather than advancing to the kind of trust that can get us through this problem-filled life, this problematic world, into the kingdom without problems of any kind forever. It was hard for Habakkuk to believe this. It was hard for him to believe that they would suffer incredible defeat but it would actually be their great victory. Just as it might be hard for us to think when we look at the cross of Jesus that that greatest of all defeats was actually the finest victory that God could ever win. But we must know that that is what God has done. You know, in verse five, God said to Habakkuk, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And I wanna end today by pointing out that Paul the Apostle in the book of Acts, when he preached the gospel in a Gentile city one day, he said these words. He quoted from Habakkuk chapter one, verse five, and he said, God is doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And then he followed up, not by telling them, about the Chaldeans, but by telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message of God's handling of sin that is so radical that it is hard to believe. But praise God that many of us have heard this gospel message and we have believed it, amen?